Welcome um, to part five of this series. This is the part that didn't exist um, when we started this series, kind of an add-on. Um, uh, and, and if this is your first time at Grace Point or maybe your first time in a while, you're, you're coming in. This is the last chapter of the book, okay? So some of this isn't going to make sense. And if you want to go back and catch the first few parts, uh, you can find those on our website. Uh, we have a YouTube channel. Um, just search Grace Point Topeka, and, and you can catch those there. Um, but this series has, all, has been all about a question that I hope bothers you for the rest of your life. Um, and it's a question about your faith. It's a question about your confidence, your trust um, in God. So I think it's important enough to bother you um, for the rest of your life. The question, the question is this, what would your life look like if you had perfect faith? What would your life look like if you had perfect faith? What, what would it look like in your family? What would it look like um, in your work? Um, teenagers, what would it look like for your life at school? What would it look like in how you honor your parents? How would you handle your money? How would you handle your morality? How would you handle your sexuality? How would you, how would you go about living out your integrity where, wherever you find yourself? What, what, what would your life look like if you had perfect faith when things were good, when things were bad, when life was under control, when life was out of control? I, I would love for that question to just bother you partly because it bothers me. <laughs> what would your life look like if you had perfect faith? And, and, and if that question stirs anything inside of you that makes you go, I think I'd like to find out. That's kind of what this series has been about. How, how do I get from where I am to, to what, whatever perfect faith looks like in my life? How, how does our faith, how does our confidence and, and, and trust in God grow? Does that just happen organically? Is that something that he just does in us and we just kind of sit there and allow it to happen? Um, or, or do we have something to do? And, and I believe the answer to that question is yes. We have something to do. When Paul um, encourages the church at Philippi to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, that implies action. That implies responsibility. So um, we've talked about three ways or three mechanisms um, that God uses to grow our faith. And we're going to wrap up with the last one um, today. And I want to just go back and remind you, these aren't listed in the Bible. I think they're biblical, but you're not going to find a verse somewhere that has all of these listed out and says, do, do all of this stuff and, and, and you're good. I've already admitted that there are probably more than the four things that we're going to talk about. These are just observations. As I look at the Old Testament, look at the New Testament. As you look at the last 2,000 years of church history, as I look at, at how God has worked in my life, as I, as I look at how God has worked in some of your lives or how he's working right now, you put all of that together and I see these four things popping up over and over and, and, and over again. Number one, you'll see a consistent helping of biblical community in people who are growing in their faith. God uses human relationships to grow our faith in him. So that's one of those things. Um, there are spiritual disciplines. That's the, the second thing we talked about as, as Pastor Josh reminded us that the spiritual disciplines is how we learn to wear Jesus's easy yoke, right? So there's things that we can do on a regular basis to grow in our faith. And then last week, we talked about the steroids of growing faith. 
the sanctified surprises, the things you have no control over, the things that come into your life, whether you want them to or not, and they pop up, they happen, and how you respond to them, how you view them. Is this God doing something to me or is this God doing something in me? Those are the, the way we respond to sanctified surprises has a lot to do with how God can work in our lives in ways that he can't um, in, in any other way. And then the final one we'll talk about today, this is probably the one we should have started with, but your pastor's not very smart. Um, the, the, the fourth one is applied truth. Applied truth. And let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, you can hear about God your entire life. You can grow up in church, go to Sunday school. Um, you, can, you can even grow up going to a Christian school for elementary and junior high and high school. Maybe you even go to a private um, Christian university for four years or five years or six years, whatever, right? And you, you, you know about God, but then you have a conversation with somebody or you go to a different church than you've used to, used to going to. Maybe you go to a conference. Maybe you read something in a book and you walk away going, I didn't know that was a part of my faith. I've heard about God my entire life, but I didn't know that was actually in there because what they said, what, what, what I read in that book, what we talked about in that Bible study, like it was such a, a practical applicable way of thinking about that, of seeing the way that God works, being exposed to practical, applicable, biblical teaching, I think is one of the things that God uses to grow our faith. Again, Bible study, one-on-one discipleship, relationship in, in a small group, a Sunday morning gathering, it, but, but you don't simply learn more information about God we actually know what to do with what we've heard, with what we've learned. When you start to view God's word through that grid, through that filter, here's something God wants me to do, not simply know, your faith grows. It's, it's the intersection of your faith and God's activity in your life. It's the intersection of your faith and God's activity in this world, in history, in his son, in his church. The intersection of those two things is where God starts to do unbelievable things in your faith. And the problem in, in many churches, and I, I'm speaking in general terms, I'm not bashing anybody specifically, but the problem in some churches is there seems to be a sense of contentment in simply covering the material. That, that here's some stuff the Bible says, and we just want you to know about it. Right? Like, I mean, the, 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 some people want shorter sermons because they already know what the preacher's going to say to begin with. So can we just cover the material, preacher, and then you pray, and we can get out of here and beat all the Methodists to Texas Roadhouse, right? Let's just cover the material. That's, that's a problem. Because that's just information. And you can get information anyway. It's application is what makes the difference. Applied truth is what makes the difference. This is what you see when you see Jesus teach. When you read the gospels, Jesus taught differently. The end of the Sermon on the Mount, what does it say? When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority, unlike the teachers of the law. 
They had heard the teachers of the law their entire lives, and then all of a sudden Jesus comes in. Jesus doesn't just teach for, for information purpose. He teaches for application and for transformation. When you look in the Acts, in, in the book of Acts, Peter and John, and, and then Paul towards the later chapters, they go around, they start teaching differently than what people have heard, and it causes a response. They got in a lot of trouble. Preachers don't get in trouble for just downloading information. Preachers get in trouble when they poke. When, whenever God's word is taught in such a way that, that the Holy Spirit works, it changes people, it changes families, it changes communities. Why? Because it's not simply information. It's about application, actually doing what Jesus called us to do. Okay? And there's two people. There's two people that camped out on this idea, and it shouldn't surprise us. Number one was Jesus. Like, that's that we, we actually looked at the passage a couple weeks ago uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about the wise and the foolish builders. Today, we're going to look at what his brother said about this because what James says is actually more direct than what Jesus says. So if you have a Bible or a mobile device, want to follow along, we're going to be in the book of James, chapter one. So we're going to look at what James says. We're going to make the application and then maybe we'll see uh, Texas Roadhouse later, okay? So James one, 22, here we go. Do not merely, as in only, so don't only listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. This is amazing. This is amazing to me. <laughs> this was written over 2,000 years ago and it's just as applicable today as it was then. He's saying, there's a connection with, with those of us who are God-believing, Scripture-obeying, Jesus-following people. There's a connection between merely listening or only listening and lying to ourselves, deceiving ourselves. You say, what's the connection? You guys ask great questions. You guys always ask great questions. Here's the connection. I would make the case that this is happening right now in this room. This connection between merely listening and deceiving, it's happening right now. Because in our culture, as was the case in synagogue culture 2,000 years ago, there's this mentality. There's this idea that, you know what? If I'm in the building, I get credit. If I showed up, I mean, we showed up and God's looking at us and saying, oh, they're in the building. I'm going to bless their marriage just because they're in the building. And they drop their kids off at the fort. So those kids, they're going to grow up and they're not going to cuss. But the kids who aren't in the fort, they're going to grow up and cuss. Because those kids are in the room, right? There's this idea, and, and, and I paid, Lord, are you paying attention? Like, I'm paying attention 90% today because this is what he's talking about. There's this, this connection between merely listening and deceiving, and again, it's American church culture. But it was Jewish synagogue culture 2,000 years ago. We think somehow God gives us credit for just being there to listen. We think that that somehow translates into growing faith. James says, getting up earlier than your neighbor, enduring a speech, and missing kickoff does you no good. You're deceiving yourself if you think that. It's not listening that makes the difference. It's doing. It's obedience. 
So here's what James says we should do. It, doesn't, it shouldn't surprise anybody. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Yeah, but James, if I do what it says, I'm going to have to, like, change. I'm going to have to stop worrying. I'm going to have to start being generous. I'm, I might actually have to start making disciples. And I don't know if I want to do all that stuff. I just want credit for hearing it and feeling bad about the fact that I don't do it and move on with my week. I, I mean, if, if I start doing what it says, people are going to think I'm weird. James says you're deceived. And if you want to stop deceiving yourself, do what it says. And then he gives us an illustration, right? Just to, just to do, get a little bit deeper Here's his illustration. It's a brilliant illustration. Anyone who listens, anyone who sits in rows, anyone who takes notes, anyone who catches the podcast later, anyone who listens to the word, but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Again, a person that merely listens to the word, it's like a person gets up in the morning, walks into the bathroom, looks in the mirror and goes, oh, wow. And then goes on with their day. They don't, do, they don't do anything about the, oh, wow, right? And I guarantee you, all of you did that this morning, except you didn't stop at, oh, wow, did you? After about 11 or 12, we mature past that, and we start doing something about the, oh, wow. In fact, those of you who are about 35 or older, think about all the money that you spend to deal with the, oh, wow, Think about the time. You have an oh wow drawer. You have an oh wow section on your counter. You have an oh wow bag you take with you when you go on trips. Right? It's an oh wow. And you know when we leave the mirror? We leave the mirror when the oh wow turns into okay, I can go out in public. That's the analogy. And the analogy is between looking in a mirror and looking into God's word. When God's word is held up in front of our hearts and we go, oh, wow. I, I, I need to change. I need to be different. I need to work on that. I need to, to, to stop doing that. I need to start doing that. I need to be more disciplined. I need to forgive. I should quit treating my parents like that. Oh, wow. Yeah, but I'm not gonna do anything about that. I'm just gonna say, oh, wow. And remember, James is talking to Christians. He wrote this to Christians. So if you're not a Christian, if you're not sure what you believe and trying to figure that out, you do with this what you want. But for Christians, here's what he's saying. He's saying we're so committed to things that aren't of any eternal difference than we are. That, That whether you get every hair in place or your makeup is perfect, has nothing to do with your eternal soul. But the scripture, God's word, talks about money and morality and relationships and marriage and the way you treat people, the way you love people, the way you handle yourself at work and in public and integrity, all those things, they they affect the soul. And if you're more committed to fixing what you see in the mirror, which matters little, than you are to the things that matter much, James says you're deceiving yourself. Yeah, yeah, you show up to synagogue and you look awesome. 
but you don't obey awesome. You don't love awesome. You don't forgive awesome. You don't serve awesome. And, and it's the same. It's the same in our culture today. If you think just listening is doing you any good, you've deceived yourself. And, and then there's this weird thing that we do, and I do it. I've done it. It's probably more in, in my generation and younger than it is in the older generation. But we do this thing where we go, yeah, I should really do something about that. And then we just, well, I'm just going to be honest about it. I'm just going to be transparent. At least I'm honest. At least I'm transparent. And James says, that's great. Be honest. Be transparent. Not doing you any good. It's what you do with what God's word says that makes the difference. It's not what you intend to do, what we know we ought to do, or even what God convicts us to do. It's what we actually do with truth that makes the difference. Now, James isn't done. And this next part is a little confusing on the surface, but if you sit with it for a little bit, I just think, I think it's so powerful. Verse 25, but contrast, but whoever looks intently, now we know more about looking intently than James did, okay? James didn't have those mirrors that magnify everything. It's got lights around it. And you can look up your nose into your brain. You know, you know what I'm talking about, okay? James didn't have those kinds of mirrors. So we know more about looking intently than he did. Whoever looks intently, I'm not leaving this place until everything's in place. I'm not leaving until everything is perfect. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law. He's talking about the Old Testament in his case, because the stories and, and words of Jesus, they were floating around, but they hadn't been compiled yet. The letters that Paul wrote, some of those are floating around, but they hadn't been compiled yet into what we know of as the New Testament. So James describes the Old Testament as the perfect law that gives freedom. Now, let me ask you a question. How many times do you read the Old Testament and think, man, this is just dripping with freedom? Like all the do's and the don'ts and thou shalt and thou shalt not, all the laws. You're like, man, the Jews were so free. Now, like that's not, that's not how the majority of people read the Old Testament. They, 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 they read it and think narrow. They, they think restrictive. They think I'm never going to have any fun ever again. And that gets translated into the New Testament as well. But here James describes the perfect law as giving freedom. How in the world could that be? And again, sit with it. Here's what I think James is getting at. Some of you, like me, you got to grow up in a, a Christian home or a church like I did, where the Bible was always presented and it was always explained and it was always taught at age-appropriate levels towards application. It wasn't just about information. So very early on, I was taught, every time you get a dollar, you give a dime, you save a dime, and you can do whatever you want within reason with the other 80 cents. Give a dime, save a dime, you get 80%, right? And when I was a kid, that's easy because it's a dime. 
But then I grew up and I started making hundreds of dollars and then thousands of dollars and giving away hundreds and thousands of dollars didn't feel like freedom. That felt like lost opportunity. But I continued doing it because I believed what James says here. I believe that that eventually brings about freedom. And for the first 20 years of my life, that did not feel like freedom to me. When I started making more money, that did not feel like freedom to me. But here I am, 25 years later, and I'm free as a bird. Some of you, living in the house of your dreams, driving the car of your dreams, going on all the vacations of your dreams, and you're in debt up to your eyeballs. You have no financial margin. You have no financial freedom. You want to know why? Because you decided you have the freedom to do whatever you want with your money, and here you are. And you're not free. You're not free. You're in bondage. Some of you, like me, again, when you were a teenager, you were taught that God had specific things to say about sexuality. Primarily, that sex was designed to work best between one man, one woman for life. And when you're 15, when you're 16, when you're 19 and those hormones are raging, that doesn't sound like freedom. That sounds, that sounds like God's trying to keep something from you. But you decided to manage that part of your life the way God designed it. And you would not have said it, it felt like freedom. At 15 or 20, it would, you would say it felt restrictive. It felt like God was trying to keep me from having fun. But you stuck with it, and here you are, 15, 20, 30, 40 years from then, and you're free as a bird. I mean, just let's, let's, let's take it outside of being personal. Let's think about the message around sexuality in our culture, specifically around sexual identity in our culture, is not resulting in more freedom. It's sold like that. It's, it's, it's pushed like that, but it does not end up in greater freedom. It ends up in greater bondage. And I could go on and on and on. I'm just telling you, I've followed Jesus long enough. I've heard enough stories. I know enough people on both sides of the equation. I'm more convinced than I've ever been in my entire life that James is exactly right. The application of God's word is where we find freedom. The word of God is freedom giving if you apply it to your life, not if you believe it, not if you listen to it, not if you take your Bible and you put it right in the middle of your coffee table so everybody can see the Bible when they come over to your house. If you do what it says. And, and here's, here's, the, here's the rub. You don't initially feel free. You don't. Doing what God's word says doesn't necessarily result in immediate freedom, but it always results in ultimate freedom. It always gets to freedom. And I, I, as I was thinking this week, I realized how fortunate I am. I had nothing to do with it, so I can take no credit for it. But I was raised in an environment. I had older men and women invest in me that taught for application, specifically my youth pastor right? Eddie taught towards application. He didn't just want to download information into our brains. In fact, I was talking, <laughs> this is so surreal for me. I was talking to my son this week. His 
freshman advisor is my youth pastor. He is now Dr. Eddie Shigley. So my son's calling him Doc Shigs. And I was, that's the stupidest nickname I have ever heard in my life, right? But Eddie is my son's advisor. So it's, it's just so surreal, okay? And I wish I could explain it better than that. It's just surreal. So Cole is sitting underneath Eddie's leadership and teaching and all this stuff. And he's been through new student orientation this last week. And, and he called me this week. And part of the conversation went like this. He said, Dad... It's like I'm listening to you teach whenever I hear Eddie teach. And I, it's like, Eddie teaches like you. I was like, no, I teach like Eddie. <laughs> it's the other way around. He invested that in me. He influenced me. He wasn't content with simply filling us with information. He drew a line in the sand and said, this is what we need to do with this. And I'm so grateful so grateful for the men and the women that, that taught me God's word in a way that I could apply it in my life. Any guilt I felt growing up, any conviction I felt was not some religious Sunday morning experience. Any guilt, any conviction I felt had to do with not doing what I knew God's word says. And I'm so grateful I'm so grateful. Here's what faith looks like at school, Tim. Here's what faith looks like in dating relationships, Tim. Here's what faith looks like whenever you're trying to figure out what to do next in your life. Here's what faith looks like in marriage. Here's what faith looks like in parenting. Here's what faith looks like in, in your, your work relationship. All of those things. Here's what faith looks like. My entire orientation when it comes to the Bible, has never been, I attended, I heard, and I know more Bible than you do. Sorry. It was always, what are you going to do with what you heard? I know this, and this is what I need to do. And again, I'm so grateful that there are people who taught Scripture to me like that. I'm so grateful. It formed me it's formed and shaped my ministry by extension. It's formed our ministry as a church. It's, it's why I teach the way I do. And I know it bothers some of you. It bothers some of you because I'm, I'm application crazy in how I teach. The question I wrestle with every single week, do people walk away and know what to do with what they've heard? That's the question. Do you know what to do after you walk away from this? Why? Why? Because it's one of the things that God will use to grow your faith. It's one of the things that he'll use to grow your teenager's faith, your kid's faith, your young adult's faith, by exposing yourself to teaching that's application-oriented, not just information. Not just, ooh, that was really good. No. What do I do with what I've heard? So, what's the application for today? What's the application here? I can't encourage you enough to put yourself in environments on a regular basis where the Bible is opened, it's discussed, it's taught, it's asked questions about in such a way that it disturbs you, that it interrupts you, that it challenges you, and yes, even sometimes makes you mad. I think there's sometimes where you should walk away from church and you're just ticked off. Not because of what I said. Well, it is partly because of what I said, but because of what God's word requires of us. I mean, just, just, just read the gospels. There's, there's at least one time 
One time, after Jesus is done preaching, the crowd wanted to throw him off a cliff. I hope that's not the application for today's message. Okay? But again, you read it over and over and over throughout the Gospels, throughout the book of Acts. Oftentimes, the teaching, the preaching of God's word elicits a response. And maybe I'm naive. Maybe I'm too old-fashioned, but I think God's word should still elicit a response in us. It should make us walk away and force us to do something about it. But please, 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 don't think that showing up and listening is doing you any good. Because it's not. It's what you do that makes the difference. It's the intersection of your faith and God's activity in your life, of God's activity in this world, God's activity through his church. It's where the faith you have, the faith you want to have, the faith you wish you have, the faith you used to have, the big old can't-steal-my-joy-devil faith that you have, intersects with God's activity. So cut this one image and then we're done. One of the best ways to think about this, just think of a can of paint. Think of a can of paint. Unapplied truth is like unapplied paint. It doesn't do anybody any good. The value of paint is in the application. So I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you to be in an environment, get your kids, get your teenagers. We all need to be in an environment where somebody pulls out a can of paint, opens the lid, stirs it up a little bit, hands you the brush and says, all right, time for you to go paint. Go paint in your homes, go paint at school, go paint in your jobs, go paint in your friendships, go paint in your integrity, your morality, wherever it is, you got to show up and you got to start applying it. And if you don't, it doesn't do anybody any good starting with you. Unapplied paint doesn't do anybody any good. Unapplied truth doesn't do anybody any good. So, here's the benediction. Charles Spurgeon tells the story of overhearing two people talk after church one day. He says, when Donald came out of church earlier than usual, Sandy said to him, is the sermon all done? Donald replied, no, it's all said, but it's not yet begun to be done. So today's sermon is all said, and now it's time for it to be done. Have a great week. Bye.